I'm Derek Thompson, the host of The Ringer podcast, Plain English. Look, a lot of news these days is kind of nonsense. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here. I'm just trying to ask the questions that matter from people who know more than I do about everything I'm curious about. And that's most things. Recession fears, AI hyperbole, psychology, productivity, China, war, streaming, movies, sports, you name it. The world without jargon, the news without bias. Plain English with Derek Thompson. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hi, I'm Tara Palmieri. I'm Puck's senior political correspondent, and this is Somebody's Gotta Win. Welcome to the new year, 2024. We are officially in the election cycle. Yes, we are. Presidential election year. And we will soon get into chat about Iowa, less than two weeks. The caucus is on January 15th. And then into the general election with our special guests, who I will talk to about whether Biden can get the meh voters to come out and vote for him. But first, I just want to weigh in on the Jeffrey Epstein news. Um, It's been coming out, unsealed files in the Virginia Jeffrey Roberts uh, suit against Ghislaine Maxwell. Um, I have hosted two podcasts on Jeffrey Epstein. I've spent over a year investigating the story. I worked on the second season of Broken Seeking Justice and Power the Maxwells on Ghislaine Maxwell. And I traveled around with Virginia Jufrey and other victims as they tried to find witnesses who could help corroborate their claims and, and, and prove that they were sex trafficked. It's a heart-wrenching, difficult story to tell. But uh, there's one thing I took away from it all. It was that... Jeffrey Epstein was not discreet about what he was doing. And and while a lot of people are saying, wait, there aren't any new names that are coming out. We know, you know, Prince Andrew, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump were his friends. They all deny it. There's no new list of new leaders, heads of banks, politicians that have come out. I think the thing to remember in all of this is that Jeffrey Epstein traveled in a very influential, extremely wealthy group of people. And he was not hiding what he was up to. Um, He's a 50-year-old man, 56-year-old man with women who looked like they were teenagers. It was creepy. It was weird. If people didn't see it directly, they had heard the stories. After all, he was convicted in 2006 in Florida for procuring a minor for prostitution. Who wants to work with this guy? Who wants to take money from him? And if you listen to my podcast, you'll hear from the witnesses, including his houseman, like he was just doing what he was doing pretty much out in the open. And so in a lot of ways, I think the bigger story is even if these people didn't engage in sex trafficking, they knew that Jeffrey Epstein was not a good guy and they continued to spend time with him because he was rich. Um, They took his money. They did deals with him. Sure, sometimes it was for philanthropy, for the arts, the sciences. 
But, you know, he was able to rehabilitate himself after that. And he was able to get back into society and probably continue to molest and and sexually traffic women. So I think that's the bigger part of the story rather than, oh, who's the new John coming out? It's why didn't this person expose Jeffrey Epstein sooner for who he was? Um, And yes, a lot of these women claim that some of the men on the list did sexually molest them. And I think we have to take their claim seriously. It's very hard to prove. But we'll see if the wheels of justice continue to roll. But yeah, I just wanted to weigh in on that since I am an expert. And I hope you will check out those two podcasts because I spent a lot of time on them. I put my heart and soul into that. Okay, now back to the election, the Iowa caucus. It's less than two weeks away on January 15th. And right now, for everyone who is not Donald Trump, it's just an expectations game. Trump is polling at 50%, according to an average of Iowa polls. And it's really now up to DeSantis and Nikki Haley to try to spin a second place into a first place heading into New Hampshire. So right now, according to an average of polls, you know, that 538 puts together, DeSantis is at 18% and Haley is at 15%. You know, that's more than 30 points away from Donald Trump. Some polls show Haley actually eclipsing DeSantis and being and coming in second. But, you know, she is already saying that she doesn't expect to win Iowa and she hopes that the New Hampshire voters will correct whatever Iowans decide. Obviously, the governor, Kim Reynolds, who endorsed DeSantis, did not appreciate that comment, but she has a much closer race with Donald Trump in New Hampshire. One of the recent polls showed her showed her at 30 points and Donald Trump at 44 points. It is a weird expectations game and it's a strategic game, too. Donald Trump is aiming his fire mostly at DeSantis in Iowa because he knows that DeSantis' voters are more inclined to vote for him rather than Nikki Haley. And getting rid of DeSantis means that he just has a higher share of the votes, whereas Nikki Haley is still fighting with Ron DeSantis, hoping that the other share of the voters who wouldn't go to Trump would go to her, the anti-Trump voter. So basically, all fire is on DeSantis right now. Sure, there are some ads that the Trump team has put out against Haley um, in New Hampshire, South Carolina. But, you know, they see her as someone to deal with later on in the race. First, they need to get rid of Ron DeSantis. And, And truly, you know, DeSantis sort of keeps her in the game because if all of his voters end up going to Trump, there's a bigger delta between her and Trump in New Hampshire. So here we are talking about the expectations game, the race to second place. And I think for these other candidates like Nikki and Ron, they just need the money. They've got the money. They can keep rolling. Nikki Haley is fully expected to keep rolling into her home state of South Carolina. And I've been told from Trump's team that they want to, quote unquote, finish her off there like Custard's last stand. If she wants to know how unpopular she is in her own state, we're going to show her. Yeah. Exactly. That was from a Trump official. So there will probably be some drama as long as one of them stays in the game. But Trump's team, they're not spending as much money, whereas Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley are going for broke on advertisements in the early primary states. They're still fighting for second. But Trump really, as he looks like he will almost definitely be the Republican nominee, he's He's sort of saving his resources for the general election where he'll have to take on the Democratic incumbent, Joe Biden. 
So we'll talk about the general election mostly in this episode. And for that, I've got bestselling author and journalist Joshua Green on the pod to talk about his new book, The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the struggle for a new American politics. Joshua Green is one of the preeminent journalists on the extremes or the activists, really, of both parties, the Republicans and the Democrats. Um, he had a great book called The Devil's Bargain about Steve Bannon. It was a number one New York Times bestseller. And it really helped explain the movement that brought Donald Trump into the White House. It was the backlash to the 2008 financial crisis, the feeling that the bankers had won, and generally an angst against the shift toward globalism. We saw it all over the world, in the UK with Brexit. Elizabeth Warren, she was tapping into this too on the left when the banks were getting bailouts. And she was she was a really loud voice for the left wing of the party, which led to Bernie's rise and then AOC's rise. So Josh, tell me how you think these same activists, these same leaders of the populist wing of the Democratic Party are going to play into 2024. Yeah, well... Democrats have always been or traditionally been, you know, the party of workers, unions, middle class, that sort of thing. And part of the narrative in this book is, you know, my my big claim is that the 2008 financial crisis was basically this earthquake in American politics that gave rise to uh, a populist strain on the right, which led to Donald Trump, Tea Party, that sort of thing, and a populist strain on the left, which led to my three characters in the rebels, uh, Warren, Bernie, and AOC. and what made this history interesting to me was that, you know, I've, I've been a Washington political reporter for a long time and cover the campaigns like you do. And, you know, when I was out on the trail with Bernie in 2015 or Trump in 2015, there was just a lot of excitement around these people and a lot of kind of animosity toward the old dynastic politicians. You know, Jeb Bush was the original front runner and, of course, Hillary Clinton. Uh, and it just seemed like something kind of fundamentally had changed, like the mood of the country was very negative. A lot of it was due to the fact that like, you know, five, six years after the crisis, people still didn't have jobs and like didn't have the retirement accounts, that sort of thing. And, you know, we saw the effects of that in 2016. So from where I sit, um, these characters have had a big effect because what they did, like once Trump got elected, Democrats collectively woke up and were like, holy shit, how does a guy like this get elected? Like, what have we been missing? And that's when you really begin to see this sort of steer toward more of the like a return to the kind of working class focus. And Biden was definitely the most centrist, you know, Wall Street normie in the group in 2020. But like he got elected and he's governed as president in large part by adopting like big pieces of the populist economic agenda. Right. So after the next financial crisis with COVID, huge stimulus, beefed up unemployment benefits. He did like the full Elizabeth Warren plan of like, Let's freeze student loans. Let's freeze evictions, small business loans. But so did Donald Trump when he was president. He totally did. And like, I think that's a good point because the power of like a lot of these ideas, like it wasn't lost to people on the right either. Like the response to the 09 crisis was this huge calamitous failure on both mm. sides, right? Too if much austerity. A, <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I mean, if you're if you're from the For Jeb the Bush wing of the Republican Party and like you see what <laughs> you see what happens and Donald Trump just owns your guy and goes rolling into the White House, like probably something not not going right for the party. You're probably going to have to kind of make some adjustments. And so, yeah, I think Trump very much, to his credit, like recognized, or, you know, Trump or the people around Trump, recognized after the COVID crash, like, okay, well, we can't just bail out banks and assume everything's going to be okay. 
let's like push this money out the door. You know, Trump got to put his name on the little stimulus checks and take credit yeah, for right, it. Right. But, you know, the effect to the credit of both of those presidents has been, you know, it took seven years to recover the jobs after the financial crisis in 08. It's taken less than two years to return this time. And here we are today with low unemployment, record stock market, you know, not hard to get a job. Inflation is coming down. Like all the economic indicators seem to be pointing in a positive direction headed into 2024. So, I, I mean, I, I argue in the book that that's a validation. That, like, the... Some people might say that all the money that was injected into the economy caused the inflation that a lot of people are complaining about right now. I think that was definitely a factor in it. I mean, I think there were three things happened. Number one, Democrats especially, you mentioned Trump did put out a stimulus, but Democrats especially, and Biden in particular, who had lived through the crisis response last time around as Obama's vice president, um, were committed to not making the same mistake again. Like, we're not going to go through a period of austerity. So they pushed for and got a very big stimulus program, which helped added inflation. I think the thing they hadn't counted on was that there would be a war in Ukraine and that there would be these, you know, lingering supply chain issues from the COVID crisis that would kind of supercharge that inflation. And, and clearly it's caused probably the central problem, wouldn't you say, for Biden's presidency, like the inflation right. and the reaction to it, which has been to tank his poll numbers and make Donald Trump seem like an electable alternative. Like Right. There's you know, this like they don't want to use the word inflation reduction act. That's the name of they don't like how they branded their own act. Um and because it reminds people of the problem inflation, they don't like the word Bidenomics because they don't really like the economic conditions right now and they don't really want to take credit for it. Although they did at one point do it and then realize, oh wait, this is actually causing a bit of a backlash. Right, 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 right. No, it's it's like it's like somebody trying a new hairstyle every two weeks. Like they haven't figured out kind of what looks good for them on the economic front. But like, there is, you know, not not to be a big defender of the Biden folks, but like, I so I work at Bloomberg Business Week. You know, I'm surrounded all day by financial nerds and bombarded with economic data. And I mean, it really is the case that like every number, every economic number coming out today, like seems to be pointing toward you know a conclusion that is about to be morning in America again. You know. Fed is getting ready to cut interest rates, which which would be a dream for an incoming president. Uh, you know, consumer sentiment is ticking up, which is important for an incumbent. Whether or not people connect that to Biden, I don't know. But the fact that he's even in the ball game, I get. I think to get reelected is in large part because he adopted the the recovery playbook from my three characters in the book in a way that the Democratic president. 15 years ago, decided not to do after the 2008 crash and instead went and bailed out Wall Street banks. Right. It was really interesting, too. I mean, like he had Ron Klain, his chief of staff at the time, really playing like go between between the progressives and the White House. It showed how seriously he took their input and perspective in the Build Back Better Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. And it was basically like a negotiation between Joe Manchin, the White House and the progressives. And the progressives really won a lot, I think. I mean, that was, you know, so I was sort of semi-embedded with a lot of my characters and their staffers kind of throughout the book writing process. Um, mm. And the thing that amazed them was, like, I was talking to one of Warren's longtime staffers who'd been around back in 2009, remember, before she was a senator, she was the TARP oversight cop. Like, she was the one that kind of policed the, the big bank bailout and had been, you know, a very public advocate and critic of the Obama administration, what they were doing, and thought that their response wasn't focused enough at the, uh, at the middle class. And I remember back then kind of going to coffee with this guy and him just saying, like, we, we can't get the time of day. Like, all these people hate us. Nobody will listen to us. 
this time around, that same guy is like, this is terrific. Like, we've got a voice on the inside. We've got people mm. working for Did Joe Did they think Biden. Ron Klain was a voice on the inside? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 They were, I think, I think they were shocked at how bought into an economic, to a left populist economic agenda that Ron Klain was from the outset. Like, I think it was kind of disorienting to some of them because, you know, these kind of lefties have been in the wilderness for so long. Right. The idea that, like, the chief of staff is listening to their ideas and they're getting meetings and, like, Biden's saying the things he's saying. And, and, and in fairness, yeah, I was talking to a White House official who is not at all um, associated with that wing of the party. And he told me when I was doing the book, he's like, listen, yeah. I'm like, is this all for show or like does Biden really kind of believe this stuff? And he goes, well, look, you know, I work in the White House and the people that give us headaches are Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, but nobody is complaining about Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And that's all you need to know. It's kind of interesting because they're getting what they want. And so they're not making a lot of noise. And so I think their profiles have lowered. I think that's absolutely right. And the other thing that like drives me bananas, and this is a big part of like my 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 book push is, you know, the story of this book really is supposed to be like kind of a serious history on the rise of left-wing populism told through Which these, it is. It starts in like Jimmy Carter era. <laughs> literally, yeah. And how the, how the kind of, how the Democrats came under the sway of Wall Street in, in, in the 80s, how that helped lead to the financial crisis and how this strain of liberal populism like emerged from the ashes with these three like very compelling figures. Mm -hmm. But the thing that drives me a little nuts is that the left, especially the social media left, which I stew in all day, you probably do too. Yeah. Uh, there's no, I such don't. An, don't. Oh, come on. Don't lie. I, know, I see you on there. Like, oh, no, it's the conservatives that are coming at me all the time. It's oh, Ron really? DeSantis's bots. Yeah, because uh, I'm covering uh, the, the primaries a little about, more. I guess I haven't written enough about DeSantis yet, uh, lately to get You haven't uh, gotten to a get Christina Pushaw uh, and a Nasty Graham coming at you. Oh, God. She, I, we'll talk about that later. What What's next, next for Christina Pushaw? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. But the thing on the left, like there's so much lefty kind of doomerism out there now. And if you just step back objectively and like read read the story in this book, like the populist left has managed to achieve so much, not by electing Joe Biden, not by electing Bernie Sanders president or Elizabeth Warren, uh, but by filtering large parts of their agenda through Joe Biden's presidency. So you have like the largest climate bill in U.S. history. You know, it's not the Green New Deal, but AOC, like rather than attacking Biden, like, you know, managed to help. But the get Green New Deal didn't even make it. Dollar. I don't even know if it's ever there was like one cosigner and never even went on the floor. Like it never even had like formal legislative yeah. text. Yeah, yeah. But I think I mean part of the story of AOC in my book is that you know she came in as this kind of radical, but smartly realized that look, if I want to have an effect on the climate, I need to kind of work through the system in Congress and through the Biden administration. So Biden passes you know the IRA. It's touted as a reduction act, but buried in there is three hundred million dollars for the environment, which is just a huge achievement for the environmental left. It just wasn't, it just wasn't touted as such in the legislative process because people didn't want Joe Manchin to get all hot and bothered and go storming off. Yeah. And, you know, on the economic front, you know, it's not just the stimulus and, and kind of the bailout from COVID, but I mean, look at, look at Biden's White House. I mean, you have, you know, key Warren economic figures, whether it's, you know, Barat Ramamurti or his successor, are literally like at the table making economic policy. And I think that's reflected in what Joe Biden has done. So to me, like my message to the left is like, you, you guys need to take the win and, and, and kind of settle down. Like you're getting a lot of what you want here, but if you can't manage to get Joe Biden reelected, then I think a lot of this stuff is going to be discredited. Interesting. Right? Like if, if Biden loses, the message is going to be 
Democrats spent too much. It caused inflation. Well, we can't ever do that again. Let's go back to kind of austerity. Wow. Austerity is back. Although Trump's not calling for austerity at all. Um, Right? Yeah, but like Trump doesn't have any kind of a, he doesn't have any kind of a policy agenda. No, he doesn't. But I think think austerity is not his policy agenda. That's one thing's for sure, right? He likes to hand out checks. He gets that, like it's politically popular to give out money. I mean, I I think if you put it to him that way, yes. As long as he gets to write his name on the check like that. But look, I mean, he doesn't want to get rid of Medicare. He doesn't want to get rid of, you know, even Obamacare isn't figured out what to do with that. No, he doesn't. Although he did try and get rid of Obamacare. And, you know, so I think, I think, you know, he's not like burning with a desire to recraft U.S. policy. He just like wants to kind of get wins. And if he can give people money and it'll make him excited, so much the better. But if, you know, the Paul Ryans of the world want to nudge him into like repealing Obamacare and, you know, cutting the budget or or whatever. Like, you know, it seems like he was willing to go along. Yeah, with that he too, would do that too. I think you're totally right. He doesn't have an ideology. That's why it's so difficult for people to wrap their their heads around him. Uh, but he does like hug union workers. He does sort of still tap into this, like we said, multiracial working class, like Union. Yeah, like cu- culturally, yeah, yeah, culturally, I think he shows a lot of affinity for, you know, working, even though he didn't actually go visit a union thing in Michigan when him and Biden did their little spiel. He just said first he was going, though. He he kind of beat him in the messaging war. He said for, yeah, he said first he was going. Then we went to like the non-union shop and all the union guys got mad, but. Oh, whatever. I mean, Don't mess up like, the story winning. with the details, Josh. Come on. <laughs> right, 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 right. But no, but he, look, I mean, he, but it's, it's working. I mean, he's, he's getting working class Black people are moving over, working class Latinos. I mean, it's definitely a trend that should worry Joe Biden. I think it's one reason why Biden's poll numbers have tanked is like he hasn't really done a good job uh, you know, of salesmanship for the successes that he has managed to get. Well, can Bernie and Elizabeth and AOC, can they can they get out there and help Joe Biden like sell his economic record? Or is that just not in their DNA to be the ones to be promoting what's been done. Like they're just rabble rousers who like to complain when they don't hear what they want. Cause that's to me, that sounds like that's their posture. I mean, I'm sure they'll all endorse Biden, but how much are they really going to go yeah, out there yeah. and be like, no, he did everything we wanted. It's great. See, I see. I think they're gonna, I mean, the, the interesting evolution of each, you know, so I, I do, I do a, you know, I do a kind of a mini bio of each of them in the book. And the interesting evolution of all three of them is that all of them began as lefty rabble rousers and were very public and were very successful about it. Like Warren was the first big prominent critic of of Obama, you know, when he was president and she was kind of like the head of it until she decided not to run. Then Bernie came along, ran for president, got famous, and then AOC came along. So all of them were activists. But Once Biden got in there, like all of them, rather than like trying to occupy the White House the way AOC occupied Pelosi's office or criticize him or run against him for the Democratic nomination in 2024, any one of these three could have done that. They all chose not to do that um, because they've realized that they can get more, they can achieve more of what they're looking to achieve policy wise by working with Biden, working with Ron Klain. And the fact is they've managed to do that. And I think all three of them are smart enough to know that if they want this this kind of transition Biden talked about, I'm a transitional figure. If they want the Democratic Party to continue to transition in this left populist direction, then they need to work to get Joe Biden reelected. So I actually think that they will be out there for him campaigning. The question is, are people going to be willing to listen? Right. I would think that they should be doing that now, though, because I I I, I get the feeling that 
it, I don't know, the, the, with the poll numbers the way they are, just confidence in Biden keeps dropping. They should be out there now. And it is interesting to see that Biden isn't being primary really from the left. Maybe Cornell West, but it's basically on um, foreign policy, it feels like. That's the only way he's being primary from the left. Am I, am I wrong? I mean, yeah, well, look, I mean, I, maybe. But they're not. I mean, look, you, all, you, all you have the to Democratic do is go back. You know, so my, right, right. So, so my book starts off a little... <laughs> Unexpectedly, in Jimmy Carter's White House in 1978, and the reason I picked that was because it was it was the moment kind of Wall Street first got their claws in, in into the Democratic Party. But but Carter was in a similar position in some ways as Biden is now. The White House hates this comparison, but oh yeah, you know, because he's the was, one president who didn't win re-election and got primary exactly. <laughs> but you know the, the you know the, the the economy was in terrible shape. Inflation was rampant. Carter's poll numbers were down. Um, but what happened back then was like the left turned on Jimmy Carter, like 12 Democratic senators, uh, you know, got behind Ted Kennedy, convinced Ted Kennedy to run against Carter in the Democratic primary. This time around, that didn't happen. I was talking to Bob Shrum for the book who worked for Jimmy, uh, who worked for Ted Kennedy during that race. He must and have been 12 years old out, then. <laughs> I think he was. Yeah, or else he's 112 now. Yeah. But he pointed out like, the situations really aren't that similar. Like, like the Democrats still have confidence in, in Joe Biden, but especially the Democratic left, the populist that I write about, Warren and Bernie and AOC. And you can see that in the fact that none of them are challenging Biden. Like no realistic kind of like non-goober candidate has gotten into the Democratic primary. Instead, it's this kind of menagerie of like, you know, Dean Phillips and Cornell West, maybe. And I guess RFK isn't in the primary anymore, you know, but him and his Valken are out there trying to do whatever they're trying to do. They're kind of gaslighting. Like, none of these You're, are, they're not anyone. None of these are like, serious yeah. blue chip politicians who present any sort of threat to Biden or anybody else. So I don't know. To me, blue that chip says politicians. That, I like that. It's like how you talk about companies. Uh, I'm going to use them. I'm stealing well, it's that like from how Josh. you talk about like like I was I was actually thinking about like football prospects or recruits oh, or something oh, like that. You, know, you got your blue chippers, <laughs> and then you got your like, and then you got your like sad walk-ons like okay. Dean Phillips. I sort of consider to be like the you know sad walk-on who can get a scholarship. I mean, his latest tweet was like, "Don't you want to be with a? Don't you want a president who?" who lived through something about MTV or something like that. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I saw that. I'm like, what the... F <laughs> it, it's his, obviously, his, his only differentiator is age, but it's a serious one. Um, and obviously, there's... But he also seems like kind of a... Kind of a I don't know. He, he sort of presents as like a weirder dude than I'd really expect. Like, I knew he'd been in Congress for a while. I might have interviewed him once or twice back in the day, but like... He seems like a real oddball, like just in, in the way he's run his campaign and who he's surrounding himself and what his message yeah. is or isn't. Or he hires know. a Republican to launch his campaign. He's a billionaire, yeah. gelato heir. How do you even make that much money yeah. from gelato? I'd like to know. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> uh, oh, he's not a billionaire. I take that back. Sorry. Centimillionaire. Um, Nepo, Nepo baby, though. You write a lot about white working class rage. Um, elected Trump, right? Also, you know, followed Elizabeth Warren, created a populist movement on the right, um, and then Bernie Sanders. It's interesting because, like, my father um, is a uh, Trump supporter, uh, traditional Republican, but, like, found his message to be appealing. Like, we'll probably vote for him again. And um, it fits that demo. Um, but 
you know, he also like the Bernie Sanders message appealed to him as well. And I know there's a lot that's been written about it, but you you write about it in your book, this idea that these there's a lot of crossover between these voters, but like how are how do you win them back into the Democratic Party? I don't know. Like that's a great that's a great question. And 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 sort of the thesis of my book is that, you know, for all the kind of drama and social media and cable news stuff we give to cultural fights about, you know, race, gender, plagiarism, COVID, whatever. Like at the end of the day, you know, when I was out on the campaign trail and still to this day, you know, talking to kind of Bernie voters, talking to Trump voters, back in 16, I used to ask, I always ask, like, who's your second choice? And for a lot of Bernie people, like if you weren't in a college town, if you're just like small town in Iowa, talking to a working guy, a lot of times it would be Trump. And at Trump rallies, a lot of times it would be Bernie guys because the similarities in their message back then, like people forget this about Trump. Fuck but the in 15 and 16, <laughs> it was established. But he used to go after Walls. I mean, he was running ads about Lloyd Blankfein and Goldman Sachs. I mean, he was like, and this was Steve Bannon, but it just pure uncut economic populism. And like that stuff matters. Like the economic stuff, the kitchen table stuff, like really matters with working people. Because at the end of the day, once you get outside the bubble of kind of, Washington political nerds, like most people, I think, make their decisions based on how is my life going for my family? What do my prospects look like for my kid to go to college or get a job? How's my retirement account doing? Am I fearful I'm going to like lose my job? Do I feel like I'm getting screwed by China or this they often or that? Don't and, vote and both on noble of those guys like democracy. It's not yeah. like they're, yeah, greater yeah, look, they, like they, inclusion. You know, People are... They're looking at politics through, at the level of their own lives. And like, I totally respect that. And I try and get out of Washington as much as I can to kind of do that kind of reporting. I was in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania at a steel town a couple of a couple of weeks ago where they're building this new low-carbon steel plant. A lot of it owes to Joe Biden. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm asking the people there, I'm like, wow, you must be psyched about Joe Biden. And they're like, why? I'm like, well, it was his bill that... They had no idea. They're just happy because, you know, things are turning up. You know, son's going to get a job. Things are looking up for them. So I think that this this kind of economic populism, this populist working class message really has a kind of power and is necessary for Democrats in particular to, to foreground, for Biden to foreground. Um, because if he's defined as the, you know, if, if the 2024 race winds up being framed around immigrant car caravans and, I don't know, defending Harvard plagiarists and you know, new new pronouns for people and that sort of thing. That that's just not a situation that's going to lead to the likelihood, I think, of, of of a Joe Biden victory. Whereas he, he actually has managed to accomplish a lot in the economy. Like we've recovered from COVID, inflation's coming down, stock market's going up, unemployment is great. He has a message he could go out and sell to those kinds of people if he gets out of the White House and if he decides that that's what he wants to talk about, rather than what what is it this week? Saving American democracy. Yes, they really love the American democracy stuff. They're all over the country talking about it. And listen, democracy is important, but I don't know that everyone's thinking about it. It's like what men think about ancient Rome or something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like a yeah, it's a big guy. I thought it was more conservative men that were obsessed with ancient Rome. Oh, is that but my, true? I mean, my my thought always was like, if your big concern is, oh my God, we're going to lose our democracy, you're probably already pretty politically attuned, and you're probably already a Joe Biden voter. Like, so who else are you persuading? But those are anti-Trump voters anyway. Like they're they're yeah, like exactly, died in exactly. the wool anti-Trump voters. If you're afraid of democracy, you're pretty like yeah. You yeah. see, you but see sadly, like nobody nobody has put me in charge of the Biden campaign to kind of redirect along, along uh, 
the economic populace. Or you're relying on like female activists, voters to come out and vote for abortion rights, essentially, right? Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's another bit of it. Um, You know, it's interesting. So I was, before the 2016 campaign, I actually didn't cover the 2016 uh, presidential campaign. I covered Brexit um, in the UK. And like, I thought Brexit was going to happen. I saw like the excesses of globalism and the feeling that like the elites were out of touch in Europe. Um, Just because like, you know, going out to towns that were like formerly labor, like Doncaster, and that had become UKIP, the United Kingdom Independence Party. And like Nigel Farage was like, people had tattooed his face on their arms and he's like signing babies' heads. And oh, he's, like, he was like a spiritual leader there, the way that Trump is. And a big, like, no one knew that I was living in Brussels with a Polish passport because my mom's Polish and I have two citizenships. And like, so I actually was engaging in the kind of, um, what is it called? Like uh, the you know, they had open borders. And so these these workers from the East, Eastern Europe, where they weren't on the pound or the euro could like, you know, bring their money back. They get the Zloty, it's worth more. And they were just economic migrants, exactly what we have right now with our Southern border, except it's legal there. And you get all of the, you know, you get all the economic benefits. You also have to pay taxes in that, you know, country. But, um, you know, if you talk to them, they think, oh, I'm just talking to an American girl, but they would really like tell me exactly how they felt. These old generals or colonels would, oh, about, right. <laughs> about the Polish people that are coming through or the Czechs that are taking their jobs and the and the, and the mining towns and, and not mining towns, whatever the industrial towns that were there in Britain, they were, they were feeling the impacts of it. And you saw a lot of like shut down shops and you felt like the sort of depressed area of little England. And well, and, then, and, and Bannon's big thing was that that Brexit energy was what swept across, you know, the Atlantic to the U.S. and kind of led to the rise of Trump. Because totally. I remember, I mean, I was I was embedded with him, and you know, throughout the kind of transition, and like I'm pretty sure the first visitor to the Trump transition was Nigel Farage. Like he <laughs> showed up, and I wound up going to get a beer with him. And I wrote this hilarious profile of him for Business Week at the time. And it's just like, he was just like the happiest guy in the world. It was just bouncing around the Trump White House. And everybody in Washington's like, who the hell is this guy? But uh, No, he know, was a huge leader. In, in He was like the um, spirit animal of, yeah, of like the Trump White House for like the first month or so. And he made a lot of money that night on Brexit. But I remember the sky was pink. I was in Brussels. And I, I remember I knew it was going to happen. I'd also like written some pieces that got picked up for... This was for Politico Europe. They got picked up in the British tabloids. Like just like one of them was like the these members of European Parliament. Like you wouldn't even know one if they smacked you in the side. Of, like if you saw them on the side <laughs> of the road, you wouldn't know them. Even if you were in your own country. And they they had their own drivers. And they had like the drivers had suits and it was just like the excesses of like bureaucracy and like people had just not understood exactly what the European Union was doing but all they knew was they felt like they had that they had less because of it and they were fighting against Europeans for the same job so I I, I, I felt it I knew it was going to happen then my friends the next day the Brits that I was friends with who worked at like the Daily Mail and the Telegraph and the FT they, a lot of them just didn't think it would happen they were crying in fairness it was like very close the vote um, and I know people are suffering now because of it, but I don't know. When I came home, I just told people, I'm like, I think Trump's going to win. This I is mean, real. none of us, none of us thought it was happening here. I literally, because I write for Business Week, right? Like print magazine, we come out on a, we come out on a Wednesday. I had pre-reported and pre-written a Hillary wins the White House cover story for 2016. Yeah. Like a lot of folks did because like, I wasn't going to have a lot of time, you know, at like 10 PM, I was just yeah. like, oh shit, he's going to win. 
dragged that thing into the gutter or into the into the trash, you know, and just started making phone calls and like pulled an all nighter on how Trump managed to like pull off the craziest win in in U.S. political history. But yeah, nobody saw. I didn't have the pressure of people that were like closest to Trump. Yeah. I have text messages, though. I have text messages, though, with random European um, diplomats saying, like, I'm like, didn't I tell you who'd win? They're like, yeah, you were right. I just had a feeling. Also, like, my parents live near Bucks County, and I, like, listened to my father, and I just sort of gotten the vibe that, like, oh, no, this is, like, this is real. Um, Now, okay, what's your gut feeling now going into this next election? I mean, the polls are better for Trump than they were in 2016. <laughs> They're better for my, than they like, were for him in 2020. So here's my thing. My, my gut feeling is sort of like dread at the prospect of having to cover another Trump presidency, not for political reasons, just for like lifestyle exhaustion, constant bombardment of news reasons, because I feel like I've only just recovered from the first admin, uh, Trump administration. Um, so there's a little bit of that in terms of like the numbers, because I do work at Bloomberg and we are like a financial company and like this stuff is just crossing my screen all day long. It is kind of interesting to me that like, I feel like the vibes for Biden hit like an all time low, like maybe the last week in December, the second week in December or something like that. Um, but since then, like everything has really started to trend up. Like the Federal Reserve came out and basically said, we're not going to cut interest rates anymore. We're not going to raise interest rates anymore. And we're probably going to do a bunch of cuts next year, which will supercharge the U.S. economy. Uh, you know, stock market just hit like an all time high. Check my 401k at the end of the year and was like pleasantly surprised for the first time in a while. You know, unemployment just does not want to go up. I mean, these jobs are, are great. Uh, you know, wages are still rising. Inflation is coming down. So if like if you look at all the economics, uh, economic models and if you look at all the political models of, well, if the inflation is growing in election year, that's good for the incumbent. They all point to the fact that like Biden is going to have like a, a wave of good news behind him. And so maybe that's enough coupled with Trump's kind of return to the public consciousness once he's once he's the nominee. Maybe that's enough for Biden to squeak by and win another term, you know, but then I turn around, I look at the poll numbers and, you know, it's just mind blowing to see how badly Biden is doing, you know, not just in a head to head, but in all the crosstabs with the different kind of demographic groups that he's going to need to win, whether it's young people, minorities, um, you know, what have you. And like, it's hard to imagine him kind of going out on the campaign trail and really being an energetic, charismatic figure who kind of get people excited. He doesn't seem to really have that in him anymore. And, you well, know, he's so just... protected and shielded from the press that I just wonder, you know, is is he going to look to most American voters like he's up for another four years of the job? And I think that's still an open question. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, he doesn't have, he doesn't exactly like inspire a tribe of, uh, you know, young or like excited Democratic voters. I do, I know that the economic indicators you in, you mentioned are interesting and definitely, if, you know, if you believe in tr- trickle-down economics, it will certainly help and un- high unemployment rates are great for even, you know, low-wage workers. But a lot of the things you talked about, like the stock market and 401ks, like, I don't know if that's like a, you know, middle-class populist indicator of wealth. You know what I mean? If it's like eggs are still insanely expensive and they haven't fixed supply chain issues. And also it's just like, is the age thing just going to totally... I don't want to use a Trump, the word Trump, but like, is that just going to be the... the Like, is his age going to sort of 
be the biggest factor, regardless of... And, and people actually don't think... and think the economy was going well under Trump. And in fact, they sort of have a bit of nostalgia for the economy under Trump, which is... Yeah, I think, the, I think they do right now. I mean, the question is going to be, you know, if the economy is booming 11 months from now, which it, it, it looks like it might be, does that kind of Biden economy versus Trump economy, is that as much of a variance as it seems like right now? Or if things are going well... Does that lead people not to kind of long for the glory days of the 2019 economy? Um, and also, like, I think I think it's really going to come down to there's going to be a pool of voters, not necessarily working class, who are kind of like, I think of them as like the meh voters, you know, don't love Biden, don't love Trump. Um, you know, in last cycle, we called them double haters. Like, they're not, they don't like either guy, but they're going to vote for one or the other. You know, I think at the you end mean, of the like day, people listening to this podcast, somebody's got to win. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, I think at the end of the day, like those are going to be the people that determine whether Joe Biden gets in there for another term or not. And so, I do think the things like the stock market matter because, like, I'm, I know a lot of these voters. I'm related to some of them, and you know, they're going to look at the state of their lives. They're you know, suburban moms. You know, the the parents of the kids that my kids play with. You know, their four hundred one k is doing good. If Trump has frightened them by saying something batshit like in October in a debate or something like they don't like Biden, they think he's too old, but I could totally see them voting for Biden again and maybe doing so like in enough numbers that it gets them across the finish line. That's interesting. So you think in this election, it's not so much about like stirring up populist fever for the Democrats. It's more about getting the meh voters to vote for Biden and like Trump will have to just get his his crew of voters, which are like low propensity voters, they come out of nowhere and they have to come out for him. And like Biden basically has to get the meh to vote for him rather. I think I think um, the meh voters, I think the meh voter get activated by populism if the populism is is along the channels of, listen, I came in and I inherited a terrible economy. We sent you guys checks. We made sure you didn't lose your job. We froze your student loans and canceled them when we could. You know, we make sure your kids weren't unemployed. Now look at the economy. Everything's moving in the right direction. Stock market's growing. U.S. manufacturing has come out of a slump. I, I think that that's a message that can appeal across working class and suburban class voters. And I think that's the one Biden needs to make because if the, if the race turns in to a fight about whatever culture war issue Trump is pushing, then I don't think that's something that advantages Joe Biden. So in some sense, these like populist heroes are not really the people that we need in this election in the same way they weren't really what we needed in 2020 when like people just wanted an adult. They weren't looking for like a big change. So I think, the, I think their policies might... were needed. And, and it's to Biden's credit that he recognized that and, and put them into to being. And I do think that there are certain places like where Biden is suffering, like with young people, where uh, an AOC campaigning for him, a Bernie Sanders campaigning for him could have a big effect. You should you should like embed those two people in college towns all over the America, you know, from now until election day and have them talk about Joe Biden because he needs all the help he can get with young people. He basically needs them to go out and be like, listen, Biden did everything we wanted. It's great. You got to give him another shot to do more and um, and let the Biden team try to handle the mess. <laughs> the mess yeah, voter. Yeah, I like, I like yeah. that, by the way, the mess voter. Um, yeah, okay. And then Trump... What does Trump? I mean, Trump has his base, right? But is that that's probably not enough? And he's yeah, somehow Trump has his base. To me, he's the bigger wild card with all the indictments and the criminal charges and the Supreme Court and getting you know knocked off the ballot or maybe put back on. I mean, that's the bigger wild card for me. If the Trump of 2016 can kind of come back and control his crazier impulses, which I'm sure he can't, 
and you know talk about some of the populist stuff that he did and how he's going to make the economy great again uh, and not go off on like bizarre election denial tangents, then I think he'd still be a pretty formidable um, candidate. And he's already leading in most of the polls. But if he comes back, I don't know, you saw him on like, you saw him on like uh, that New Year's Eve thing where Vanilla Ice was performing and some of the some of the shots of Trump. I did. Like he just looked. Watch he that. looked. He looked completely out of it. I mean, he just looked like this kind of waxy old man who was like tired and didn't know where he was. And like, I don't know. Okay, it, I it was. It, 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 it trended on social media for a day or two, but like he didn't look like kind of the powerful. I think I gave myself fun. a digital detox that day. Oh, good for but you. I should go back in time. Yeah. Good for you. Well, if Trump has the energy and the charisma and frankly the entertainment value that he did as a candidate in 15 and 16, like I I, I do think he'll be a pretty formidable candidate in 2024. But I'm not sure that he's still got that. Got it. Well, Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Josh's book is called The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the Struggle for a New American Politics. Joshua Green, thank you so much for joining. And Josh also has another great book, The Devil's Bargain. It was a New York Times bestseller. And I consumed it very quickly because all of his books are really well reported and written and really get you inside not just the mindset, but like the formation of these political forces and how they've had their impact on politics. And we'll see how they play out in 2024. Thank you very much. Couldn't have said it better myself. This was another episode of Somebody's Gotta Win. Thanks to my producers, Devin Baroldi, Connor Nevins, and Christopher Sutton. If you like this show, please share it, subscribe, rate it. If you like my reporting, please go to puck.news slash Tara Palmieri and sign up for my newsletter, The Best and the Brightest. You can use my discount code Tara20. We're returning to our regular schedule next week on Tuesday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. 